Find the life you didn't think was possible with the Jesus you never knew. Together, let's slow down a little and pay better attention to the most significant person in history. Welcome to the podcast, Paying Ridiculous Attention to Jesus, with your host, Rick Lawrence, brought to you by Lifetree. Visit us at JesusCenteredLife.com. Hi, listeners. This is Season 6, Episode 2. I'm Rick, author of the just-released Jesus Centered Daily that you can check out if you want to by going to JesusCenteredDaily.com and get a free sampler. It's a 10-day sampler I put on there. All you do is click a button and download it so you can get a sampler of the new devotional. You can also watch an intro video or you can order from there or you can go, obviously, directly to Amazon or to group publishing site, group.com, if you'd like to order directly from the mothership. And if you already have a copy, please, 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 as I always say, post a review on Amazon. It really does help. It's like telling your friends, hey, I read this. (laughs) I liked it. (laughs) It helps. So please do uh, follow through if you've already got a copy. And if you don't, wow, it's it's a great time to either start start or continue a habit of just spending some thoughtful, upending time with Jesus every day, getting closer and closer to his heart every day through the little nudges that I give you from day to day. Um, if that's something that is attractive to you, this will really help you do that. And if you know someone that you think would really benefit from that same kind of pattern in their life, It's a great time to buy a gift like this, a daily devotional when people are thinking about starting new habits or uh, are thinking about acting on longings that they've had for a long time. This is the time to give them something that might nudge them over the the edge here into a new way of living. So there you have it, the Jesus Center Daily. This is the fifth episode in a series uh, I started last year, a series I'm calling Kingdom Come. And what it means is we're, we're trying to focus on what the kingdom is and how does the kingdom come? <laughs> and it's a big deal because Jesus said this was his mission to bring about the kingdom on earth. And he talks about the kingdom over and over and over again. He tries to describe what life in the kingdom is like. And he encourages his disciples and by extension us to live in the kingdom. And he tells us that uh, unless you become like a child, you can't really even understand the kingdom. And He spends a lot of time talking about this kingdom that we think we know what it is, but actually, if we slowed down to really try to answer the question, what is the kingdom of God, we realize, oh, maybe we don't know what this is as clearly as we thought. It's not not what we typically think of it as Jesus' rescue plan. We we know that Jesus came to redeem us. And he did that uh, on the cross, and his resurrection sealed it. Um, But what was he doing during his three years of missional work as an itinerant um, rabbi? What was he doing? What he tells us he was doing was he's trying to plant the kingdom of God in a dark and broken world. So today we're going to explore another facet of the kingdom of God, we're going to explore a little phrase that Jesus uses when he describes our pursuit of the kingdom of God. And that phrase is above all else. And that comes from Matthew 6, 33, where he says this, 
seek the kingdom of God above all else and live righteously, and he will give you everything you need. And this comes in the middle of a stretch where he's saying that don't worry about what you'll eat or what you'll, how you'll clothe yourself or uh, look at the birds, look at the lilies of the field. Uh, doesn't God come through for them? Um, so, so don't live your life in anxiety. Seek the kingdom of God above all else. And what he's really saying is don't seek ways to make sure that don't make your life all about um, your income and the American dream. Don't make your life all about getting the stuff you, th you think you need to, to survive. Instead, seek the kingdom of God above everything else. And God will add to you like he does to the lilies and the birds, everything else. Sounds like an impossible promise. And like, well, what is he really saying? That I don't have to have a job? I don't, I don't have to be concerned about our finances. I, I don't have to be concerned about providing for my family. What is he really saying here? Well, we're going to explore that today. What seeking the kingdom of God above all else really looks like. And it comes embedded in the middle of uh, three chapters in the gospel of Matthew, Matthew 5 through 7, where Jesus is, is launching his ministry. And in these three chapters, he does something that we don't see again anywhere else in any of the Gospels. He's essentially standing on a hillside and talking at people for a very long time. And he just doesn't do this very often. It's, it's, it's not something we have recorded in the Gospels where Jesus just kind of blorps out a bunch of stuff all at once. Um, it just never really happens. So. That's interesting in and of itself, and we're going to get to that in a little bit. Why would he do that in this instance? Why, why would he talk at people at the very start of his ministry when he spends the rest of his ministry in highly interactive and experiential environments? When he's trying to teach people after this, he's trying to help them um, uh, through conversation relationship and experiences, understand the kingdom of God. So why would he just blorp all this out instead at the start of his ministry? That's an interesting sort of Sherlock Holmes question. What's the, what's the, what are the clues to that mystery? So um, obviously above all else is a distinct declaration. That means of all the other things we're pursuing in life, this is the highest pursuit. So let's slow down and pay attention to what Jesus is doing here in the Sermon on the Mount and how it relates to this seeking the kingdom of God above all else. So here's a, here's a way to enter into this. Think of something good that you've done today. I'm just going to pause for a second. Just, um, just pause for a second and think of what's something good that you've done today. It could be any, it doesn't have to be deeply good. It just can be anything that pops into your mind that you think, well, that, that thing I did was good. I'll give you a moment. All right, did you think of something? Now, now the question is, what makes it good? So the thing that popped into my head when I asked myself that question, just like I asked you to, was I had a, a, an important meeting um, at nine o'clock today uh, on Zoom. And I had very little time left before that meeting and I needed to get ready for it. But I, I thought about the full drying rack next to our sink full of dishes and, and things from last night and about the empty coffee pot. And I thought, you know, it would really 
my wife really loves it when the, the drying rack is, is emptied in the morning. And she really loves it if the coffee's already made. So I took a risk and thought, I think I can fit this in before I have to be on this important call. And so I, I unloaded the drying rack and I made coffee and then I got on my call just in time. And that's the thing that popped into my head. And, and the question is, well, what makes that good? And I think what makes that good is I was trying to put Bev's needs in front of my own. I was trying to bring joy and peace to her in this little kind of almost insignificant way instead of serving my own needs. And, and so I think for me, that's what makes that good. I, I elevated her needs above my own in that moment. Now let's do the other side of the coin. Uh, I want you to think of something bad you've done today. What's something bad you've done? Oh, uh, well, let's pause for a second and see what surfaces with that. Fortunately, because of the nature of a podcast, you're not going to have to answer to anyone about this. So just relax and think about something bad you've done today. All right. That was a little harder, wasn't it? because it's hard for us to embrace or consider or wallow in anything that we've done that that's bad. This is going to sound so goofy, but when I asked that question of myself just now, the thing that popped into my head was, <laughs> I'm so embarrassed to say this. I, I, I have um, a habit. I love breakfast and I mix together like three or four different cereals every single morning for breakfast. It's the same mix. And I get up earlier than everyone else in the family. And so I, I'm eating breakfast alone every day. Um, but today I had a bunch of stuff to do before I could eat. And so by, by the time I was getting ready to eat breakfast, there was others that were up. And the truth is, I like it that I eat breakfast alone because I overfill that cereal bowl. <laughs> I know it's too much cereal. I know it's not good for me health-wise but I sort of quote unquote, get away with it. Cause nobody ever sees me eat that overfilled bowl of cereal, but boy, do I love it. Well, today there was other people up and I had that same overfilled bowl of cereal and I don't know why, but I just felt bad. I felt like I had been hiding something from people that I do. That's not a good habit. And I was quote unquote, getting away with it because no one else could see it. But then when somebody else could see it, I felt suddenly embarrassed and self-conscious. And I, I think the badness in that is really, if I really thought about it, was the pattern of hiding that that showed. Even though it's just a bowl of cereal, I was happy that I could do that sort of in secret and no one would have to know any otherwise. And, um, so it's what makes it bad is that I, is that I wanted to hide it from others and maybe even hide, hide the reality of it from myself. So, and I, and I mentioned that I think it's, it's harder to think of something good to do in the moment or some, uh, is, I, I think it's harder to do, to think of something not good in the moment than it is to think of something good that we've done. And then to think about what, well, what makes it good or bad? is an important question. We don't often slow, we, we sort of expect good and bad to have default settings in us that, that 
uh, we obviously know what a good thing is and what a bad thing is. And, and I don't know about you, but do, do you, well, let's ask the question. Do you think people naturally want to do good or they naturally want to do bad? I mean, you could probably get evidence if you were in a court for, to, to support either side of that conundrum there. Do people naturally want to do good or do they naturally want to do bad? Um, I do know that I, and I'm guessing this is true for you as well, that when I asked you to think about something good you've done today and then something bad, it just is more difficult to think of ourselves or to surface the thing that we did bad. It's harder to come to grips with that, obviously. That, that means personal responsibility for something. And we don't want to think of ourselves as doing bad things or even worse, being a bad person. Those things are uh, anathema to uh, how we would like to see ourselves or our identity. Um, on the podcast in previous episodes, I've thrown out a little challenge that I call a five-word five memoir challenge. There's a site called Five Word Memoirs that I just love where people can post um, little five-word sentences that give a, a, a kind of a sliver of their real life. And that's what a memoir is. It's a, it's a consideration of your life um, put to words. And on this site, it's five word memoirs. So people come up with five word descriptions of some slice of their life. And I love the, the creative construct that that site produces in, in people. And these are not lists of five words. They're, they're just mini sentences of five words. And um, I thought it'd be interesting. I challenged myself to come up with two five word definitions of both evil and good. And again, they have to form a mini sentence, not a list of words. And I think this would be interesting for you to do too, if you're looking for something to do while you're waiting at an appointment or stuck in traffic, think of your own five word definition of evil and your own five word definition of good. It'd be a good exercise to think through, well, what do you, what do you already think about these two things? So I just this morning challenged myself to do that. And here's my five-word definition of evil. Um, here, here we go. Evil is anything that contradicts the kingdom. Anything that contradicts the kingdom. For me, that means that evil can come in lots of forms, but if it does not agree with or support or build up the culture of the kingdom of God is revealed by Jesus, then that's evil. It's not of God. Um, so, so I guess another way of saying that, I don't know if this is five words or not, but anything that's not of God is evil. Um, so my definition of evil, my five word definition, anything that contradicts the kingdom. And now the, the five word definition for good. Um, here we go. Good is whatever Jesus says and does. <laughs> Uh, I feel like I'm cheating there, <laughs> but that is, that is what popped into my head. Well, the definition of good is whatever Jesus says and does. And that's actually been a guiding beacon for me in my adult life is when I consider what it is to live in goodness, really, it does boil down to anything that Jesus says or does is good. He's the definition of good. He, he embodies good. He's not just pointing to what's good. He is good. He's goodness itself. 
And so for me, good means whatever Jesus says and does. And that can be more challenging than we realize when you think about all of the things that Jesus said and did. If we consider all of those things as good, it really does unlock the depth of his character and personality when you start to consider whatever he's doing right here, like when he's lambasting the Pharisees and calling them whitewashed tombs and snakes. um, Well, that's good. That is good because Jesus is good. So what makes it good? Um, those, that question, what is good and what makes it good, is a huge question as we're pursuing Jesus. And the, and the converse is true as well. What is evil and what makes it evil is a really good daily question to ask. Um, I asked you before, think of something good you've done today and think of something bad you've done today and what makes it good and what makes it bad. Those are good things to pause at some point in our day and consider, I feel bad about something I did. Why is it bad? What makes it bad? I feel good about something I did today. Well, what makes it good? And how do we come to share definitions about good and evil anyway? I mean, how does that happen? Do do, Do human beings basically have shared definitions of good and evil? Uh, Again, you could probably make a case either way that we do or we don't. And how necessary is it for us to come to agreement on what is good and evil? And what happens when we don't agree? Um, I think these are all questions that are huge questions at this time in our culture with what we're going through right now. So I'm recording this the week after the Capitol building was assaulted by domestic terrorists and who broke into the Capitol and occupied it for a brief time, killed a Capitol policeman in the process. Um, Another Capitol policeman also died as a result of, of this breach. And three other people involved in this siege also died. So five people died um, so far. And for most Americans watching this on TV was was just surreal. Um, I've heard commentators and others say, we look like a banana republic now. And that's the exact thought I had when I was watching this. I I just couldn't believe this was happening. How could this happen? Um, But that group of people storming the Capitol thought that what they were doing is good. So how can a group of people do something like this and think what they're doing is good and have many people watching on TV that also thought in general, in a basic way, what they're trying to do is good. And how can, how can that group of people think what they were doing is good while so many others believe what they were watching there on TV is very, very wrong? Um, how, can, how can we be so divided around what is good and what is not? How can... How can some of us believe a particular news source is absolutely correct and right, while many, many others think that same news source is absolutely wrong? My daughter, Emma, was in an online class the other day, and it's a government class, and one of the students in the class raised uh, an issue with the teacher. The teacher mentioned something about um, how we get our news today, and one of the other students in the class um, said something like, every news source is untrustworthy. You can't trust any source of truth 
anywhere anymore. And the teacher said, I'd like to respectfully push back on that because that belief system means that, that no truth is true when you start to think about it. And, and he said, that, that's not true. What we're called to do is use our discernment about what is true and what isn't and expose ourselves to many sources of truth so that we can consider and mull what is true. And that process also engages in our context, the spirit of Jesus, who is truth himself. So uh, how, how can we be so divided around our sources of truth that some people say there are, any, no, there are no longer any trustworthy sources of truth at all? Um, and then what does that mean? Not just about sources of truth, but uh, then that leads to uh, a disorientation around what is good and what is bad as well. And what are the consequences of this disorientation around right and wrong? Um, what, what are the results of that? Well, um, you, you could say that it's, I, I think some people have bandied this about since last week, that it's the curse of the Tower of Babel. That is something, another image I thought of when I was looking at these images on TV is that it, it was a picture to me of the Old Testament scene of the Tower of Babel when the people of God wanted to build a tower up to the heavens so that they could, essentially, it was a way of controlling the power and authority of the heavens. And God then uh, touched their tongues and gave them all different languages and spread them out along uh, around the world. He he uh, um, put a barrier in their relationship. He he spread them apart, um, and the consequences of losing our way around right and wrong have relational impact as well. We have barriers between us when there's disorientation like that. So there's some researchers at Yale University who wanted to study how babies learn right and wrong, and their premise was that babies, so they come into the research with a premise that they're trying to either prove or disprove. Um, I watched a five minute video that I'll put a link to on our podcast episode page. Again, you go to paying ridiculous attention to Jesus.com and you look for season six, episode two, and you'll find a link to this five minute video that is that kind of gives an overview of the research that Yale was doing into the premise that babies are not really blank slates who learn right and wrong from their parents and from others in their life, that they have some hard wiring already right out of the gate about right and wrong, that babies already have some implanted sense of what is right and wrong before they even um, start to interact with their world. Um, and so this research project was designed to explore that premise that babies have some hard wiring that, that already understands right and wrong. Now, in this case, these babies, um, the babies that I saw in this study, were all, they all looked around somewhere between 10 months and 14 months old. So they're not little, little babies. They've, they've had already at least uh, eight or 10 months of life. Um, so uh, part of the premise of the research was a little bit odd to me, because how do you really test whether a baby right out of the womb has some hard wiring about what's right and wrong? By the time you've lived for 10 months, uh, even though you're just a, a little baby who doesn't have speech yet and can't walk yet, you still have experienced your environment and have still experienced 
um, what what is good and not in that environment. But nevertheless, they they brought the uh, a parent would bring their baby into a, a research room, and the researchers had set up a kind of a little puppet stage in the room, and the baby would sit at a table and look at the puppet stage, and the puppet stage had a curtain that could be lifted and lowered. And they put on little basic dramas with these puppets. And all of the dramas were involved two or three characters. And usually they were, uh, one of the characters was either helping or hindering one of the other characters. And, and at the end of each um, sort of puppet vignette, then they asked the babies, they, they presented the, the characters in, in the puppet play to, to the baby and, and sort of indicated choose one to the baby. And they watched which character the babies chose. And in the, uh, and in the examples shown on the video, the baby always chooses the character in the, in the puppet play that was good, not the one that had done something bad. And so at the end of the video, what you hear the researchers saying is this proves that babies have some hard wiring. They already know what's good and bad, and they already gravitate to the good. And I found myself thinking after I watched this, I'm not sure if they've proved their premise or not, um, that what do I think of that premise? Are people hardwired um, as little babies to know what is good and what is not? I do think this, I think that we are meant to find our identity and our standards of what is right and wrong from outside of ourselves. That's, that's what it really means to live in obedience to God. It's to say that, the, the, that I'm not going to trust and rely upon my own foundation of truth and my own foundation of goodness. Instead, I'm going to look to God and I'm going to look to Jesus to define my own standard for truth and my own standard for goodness. I'm not going to have the arrogance that maybe was exhibited way back then at the Tower of Babel, that I pretty much already know what's good and what's not. And, and do I really need God for that? I think, I think I've got this dialed in already. I think I got it all figured out. Um, I'm not sure why the researchers at Yale thought that this premise that babies are hardwired to know good from bad was an important thing to undergird. But I also don't think their research study, that at least what I saw, proved that one way or another. And my hunch is that, um, yes, we inherit aspects of who we are in our, obviously, in our biology, in our physical DNA. We probably also inherit some other things that are less easy to catalog. Um, we, know, we know that there are patterns of behavior and belief and, and other things that we sort of inherit in a mysterious, unseen way as kids. And a lot of that comes from just being formed by the environment that we enter into and the, the emotional climate that we're in. But I think in general, we are wired to find meaning, identity, and a sense of good and bad from outside of ourselves. So uh, that brings us back to the Sermon on the Mount. Um, and I mentioned at the top that, that basically what I'm talking about here is Matthew, Matthew's chapters 5, 6, and 7. And I thought, uh, let's, let's dive into that at the tail end of our podcast here. 
And what I'm going to do is just quickly go through each chapter. Now, this is going to be interesting to see if I can pull this off. We're going to quickly go through each chapter, and I'm just going to pick out things that are right and wrong. And I'm going to do this quickly. I'm going to move as fast as I can from chapter to chapter. So this is going to take a little bit, and I'm simply going to spit out to you what I see. What is Jesus trying to frame as right, and what is he trying to frame as wrong? And as I do this, I want you to put yourself in the shoes of somebody who's listening on this hillside. Obviously, I'm not going to read three chapters of the Bible right now. You know, that, that would really allow you to put yourself in the sandals of the person on the hillside. But I, I'm going to condense and synopsize and go as quickly as I can here. But I, I still want you to think about if you were standing there and, and you were just listening to this person who you did not know yet, really. I mean, he, these people did not know who he was, really. And it would be quite some time before... Uh, more people would start to acknowledge that he is the Messiah. So right now he's just an interesting new rabbi that they're listening to. And um, soon after this, what people started to say is they, they had never heard anyone talk like this before. So I want you to think about that and put yourself in that framework that you don't really know who this guy is. And he starts off his ministry with a long discourse on essentially what is right and wrong. Um, in the kingdom of God. Um, so some of these things are going to stand in distinct contrast to what these people think is right and wrong. So let's, let's, let me just take a, a whack at this, um, that Jesus thinks that those who are poor and realize their need for him are good because of their dependence on him. He thinks that those who are, are mourning and, and in lament that that's a good thing because it puts them in a, a posture of being comforted. He thinks that people who are humble as opposed to arrogant are good, that they invite something into themselves through their humility that allows them to experience all of the earth. Um, he thinks it's a good thing to hunger and thirst for justice, and people that do that are going to be satisfied. He thinks that it's a good thing to be merciful. He thinks that it's a good thing to have heart, a heart that's pure and a heart that works for peace. And, and he also thinks that it's a good thing to sacrifice yourself to do things that are right, even if you're persecuted for it. And if people mock you or punish you for the right things you do, he thinks that's worthy and good. He thinks it's, 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 it's not good if you lose your distinction, if you uh, essentially uh, co-opt yourself with the rest of the world uh, because you don't want to stick out. And, and uh, you bury uh, what is good in you uh, so that you don't stick out or you're not different. He doesn't think that's good. Um, and um, he, doesn't, he doesn't think it's good either to, uh, to, to uh, simply follow the law of Moses and make that your relational journey in life, that your relationship is with a list of laws. Um, Instead, he thinks it's good to be in relationship with God. Um, and in that relationship, because of our love for him, we obey the, um, the truths of his law when we do that. Um, and, he, and he says that the righteousness of the Pharisees at that time is not good. Um, he, he says the, the Pharisees essentially are trying to uh, self-justify, uh, uh, live a self-justifying life where they are, they are their own standard of goodness. And he said that righteousness is not going to cut it. Um, he doesn't think it's good 
to uh, be angry with someone because that's like committing murder in your heart to them. And he doesn't think it's good to call other people stupid or idiots because uh, that's cursing someone. And, and uh, that is a punishable offense as well. Um, he thinks it's good that if you're unreconciled to someone, but you're about to honor and worship Jesus, that maybe before you do that, you should go be reconciled to that person. Um, he thinks it's good that you settle your conflicts relationally instead of in front of a judge. That if as much as possible, if you can deal with your issues in your relationship together, instead of having a third party decide for you, it's better. Um, he thinks it's, uh, he thinks it's bad to look at others with lust because you've already committed an act in your heart. Um, and it would be better if you, if you just cut off the thing that was causing you to do that than to, than to feed it still. Um, he, he doesn't think it's good that a, a, a man divorces his wife. Um, he, he doesn't think that break in relationship is good. Um, he, he doesn't think it's good to make vows all the time and make promises on things and, you know, up the ante on your promises. And uh, he thinks it's good to just uh, simply say yes or no to something instead of adding a little oomph to that. He, he doesn't think it's good to exact revenge on another person who's hurt you. Um, he doesn't think that revenge cycle is good. And he doesn't think that um, the standard that we have for love is very good either. His standard for love is loving our enemies, not just loving the people that we already are in relationship with and already care about. So let's go on. That's Matthew 5, believe it or not, Matthew 6. Um, he thinks it's good to help others in need, but don't do it to draw attention to yourself. Do it in secret. Do it because of the act of it, not because of what it will bring back to you. Um, he, he doesn't think it's good to do other spiritual practice like praying and fasting so that others will honor you because of your practice. Uh, instead, he, again, he's trying to protect the sacredness of the relationship that it's the prayer and the fasting is really about something that you do in obedience with your, in your relationship with God, not something that, that uh, checks a box on your list of accomplishments. Um, he doesn't think it's good that you ask for forgiveness, but won't forgive others in your life. Um, and he doesn't think it's good that, that we have outward habits that draw attention to ourselves for how good we are, that, and that we're doing those habits because we want other people to think that we're really, really good. Um, he doesn't think it's good that we store up so much money and resources on earth uh, instead of uh, using them to help others. Um, he, he, he thinks it's a fallacy that, that we would store up all this resource as our own way of providing for our control and, and, and uh, satisfaction in life instead of having an outward focus that gives. Um, he, doesn't, he doesn't think it's good to have an eye that is unhealthy, meaning um, an eye that doesn't see well. He doesn't think that blindness is good. Um, because we can't see the light then. He doesn't think it's good that we serve two masters. Um, yeah, often we do this without even thinking about it or serving two masters. And actually he says, you can only serve one of those at a time. And then he doesn't think it's good to worry about all, uh, and to try to uh, manage or provide for 
your own happiness and success and control and agency in life, um, that you make that the top priority. Um, again, this is where that Matthew 6.33 is embedded, um, where in this little section of the lilies of the field and the birds of the air, um, why do you have so little faith that God is also going to provide for you like he does for these animals? Um, he doesn't think it's good to live a life that puts faith in our resources instead of faith in him. Um, and he urges us to sink the kingdom of God above all else here. And in the last chapter, Matthew 7, um, he, he warns against judging others because you're going to be judged by the same, you yourself are going to be judged by the same standard you use with them. And he doesn't think it's good to to be focused on someone else's imperfections and problems when you haven't yet owned your own. Um, he doesn't think it's good to be undiscerning about how you share your vulnerability with other people. He doesn't think it's good to waste things that are treasures to you on people that just can't understand those treasures and will diminish them because they don't understand it. He, um, he thinks it's good to, to be persistent in asking, especially when it comes to our relationship with God to keep on knocking. Persistence is something good because it attaches to the heart. The heart is determined. The heart is passionate. So the heart keeps knocking. Um, and you keep knocking with the expectation that God is good and that whatever he gives you after you've been knocking will be good. He thinks it's good to think about others and uh, do to them what you wish someone would do for you. That's good. That We call that the golden rule. Um, he warns against people thinking that they can uh, enter into God's kingdom through this broad way, the, the way that everyone else is, cho is choosing. No, no, he says the way really is narrow. The gateway is actually me. I am the gateway to the kingdom of God. He uh, warns people against false prophets and says that they're not going to come looking like obviously evil people. They're going to come disguised as harmless sheep. They're going to they're look fine. And, but underneath that, they're actually vicious wolves. Um, Got to watch out for them uh, because they're not what they seem. Um, watch out for them. And the way you can watch out for them is to look at their fruit. Look at what happens because of the way they act. That's how you'll know what they really are. Um, because the, the fruit comes from the, the, the tree that produces that kind of fruit. So you can track the fruit back to the root. Um, so watch the fruit. That's how you'll know. Um, he, he thinks that some people who name him Lord, Lord, um, and think that they will enter the kingdom of heaven just because they name him Lord, Lord, but don't actually follow anything Jesus says to do. He thinks that's bad. <laughs> he thinks it's a fallacy that there's going to be a judgment about that kind of bifurcated life where we embrace something that's true, but we don't live it out at all. Um, He'll, he says in the end that that's not good because uh, in the end, I'm just going to simply say what's true. I don't know you. you. You act like you know me, but you're not, you don't really know me because you're not doing anything that's based on who I am or what I say. And then finally, um, he says, it's, it's good to, to listen to Jesus, to follow Jesus and to pay attention to what he says and does, because that's the essence of wisdom and that's like building a house on solid rock, a foundation. If we primarily seek first who Jesus is and what he does and says, um, that's like building a, a rocky foundation for our home. And when the winds and storms come, it'll blow against them and it won't knock it down. 
there you have it. And it says when Jesus had finished saying all these things, three chapters of this, the crowds were amazed at his teaching for he taught, taught with real authority, quite unlike their teachers of religious law. So the question here is in closing, well, why would Jesus begin his ministry with this sort of fire hose list of right and wrong? Why, why would he do that? And what would the impact on the people who are listening to him, who did not yet know who he was, what would the impact be on him? And I, I, as I consider, you know, everything that you just heard, as I walked through these three chapters, I, I think um, Jesus here is trying to, um, in a kind of a shock and awe way, present the radical difference between what the kingdom of God's the, the culture of the kingdom of God is like in comparison to the typical way people think about what is right and wrong. He's trying to plant a flag in the ground that says, there is a standard for what is good and what is not good. Let me give you a bunch of examples. <laughs> and you start to get a picture as you think about all of the things that Jesus said was good and all the things he said that were bad you start to get a picture of what goodness really looks like and tastes like and feels like. If you, if you immerse yourself in these three chapters, you start to get a sense in your own life. Your, your senses are heightened. Your radar is up for things that fit with what Jesus says is good and fit with what Jesus says isn't good. And this, I think, is a crucial thing in the time that we live in right now. If we are going to um, uh, seek the kingdom of God above all else. Seek the kingdom of God above all else. It means that we're going to pursue to place as our highest uh, intent in life to um, uh, understand, immerse ourselves in, and develop a wiring for what is good in the kingdom of God what the kingdom of God's definition of goodness is. And as we sink into these three chapters and immerse ourselves in what G in the examples Jesus is giving of what is good and bad, we start to be able to extend that definition of good and bad into the particular and specific areas of our life that we're dealing with right now. Um, if, for instance, we're, we're, we take what he was saying that you need to look at the fruits of a person, not what they say, but their fruits, what kind of fruits do they pr produce? And you'll know what they really are by looking at the fruits. Well, that's a good question to ask in light of everything that's happened in the last week or two or the last uh, year. Um, what would we say about the fruits? Well, Jesus is saying, you know something about the root if you, if you pay attention to that. And that is important to admit that what we're seeing um, it is really revealing the root of things. And to be able to admit that is what Jesus is saying is good. So this is how, if, if we are to um, begin to live and breathe and move in such a disorienting environment, we're going to need to reattach ourselves to the, the foundational um, sense of what is good and not. And the only true trustworthy foundation is Jesus himself. And here he begins his ministry by painting a picture for people of what goodness really looks like, what it feels like. And it's not always what they would expect. And he says some controversial things like, 
the, the example of goodness that the Pharisees are giving you right now isn't really good. And here's why. They're hypocrites. Um, they don't really practice what they preach. And they're teaching you to adopt your own system of goodness, which the effect of it is to disintegrate your relationship with God. God wants a relationship with you. He doesn't want you to follow formulas and rules. And the Pharisees have done just that. They have shifted the attention to following the rules instead of the life-giving attachment to relationship that Jesus came to bring. So why would Jesus begin his ministry this way, this fire hose of right and wrong stuff? I think he's, he's trying to paint a picture of what is goodness and what isn't, um, to start to infect people with a sense of the difference between the two in a foundational way. And this is why the people were amazed at his teaching. They'd never heard anyone talk like this. So what impact would it have on them? I think it upended them. I think for some, it was magnetic that they were drawn to the difference in what they were hearing. They were drawn to goodness and they were repelled by, by evil, I think, in this moment. He was teaching them in, in the sense of uh, immersing them in the bathtub of goodness and evil um, and in that way, teaching them to, to acclimate themselves to what is good and to spot what is evil. So what then does it mean to seek? It means to place in, in the highest place in our life. And whatever we're pursuing, we're pursuing this first. That's what it means to seek. And what does the kingdom of God mean? It means that the, the patterns and practices and truths about good and evil that are inherent in the culture that Jesus lives in, the culture of the Trinity, the culture of the kingdom of God. That culture has markers for what are good and evil. And Jesus just gave a bunch of them in Matthew 5 through 7. He, he's, he's just giving short examples, tangents, wagon spokes that, head, that, that all lead back to the hub of the wheel. Um, that that's what he's trying to do is is dis describe but in in a sort of an experiential way what life in the kingdom of god really looks like what is good and what's evil in that kingdom and then the last part of it what does above all else mean uh, what does it mean to seek the kingdom of god above all else it means that we don't put any pursuits ahead of that that we don't do like the people of the tower of babel and and place our pursuit of control and self-righteousness above above our pursuit of the heart of Jesus and the goodness that he came to bring and the discernment about evil he came to give us. We don't put anything above that. That is our first pursuit. And that everything else, when we make that our first pursuit, everything else in our life falls into place. It doesn't mean that everything else in our life becomes easy. It means that when we place that first, we have just built a foundation under our feet that can survive the storms that are, that are to come. When we have sought first the kingdom of God, we can stand in the midst of a storm. All right, so let's, let's close by putting ourselves in Peter's shoes or sandals on that beach after the resurrection when he and the disciples are out on the, on the Sea of Galilee and they see the man on the beach and they, John realizes it's Jesus and Peter um, jumps into the water naked, swims furiously to the beach just to be near Jesus, the resurrected Jesus. And, and together they all share a fish breakfast. And after breakfast, um, Jesus takes Peter for a little walk on the beach. And, and he asks him three times, um, uh, 
a riveting question. I want, I want you to, if you're able, just close your eyes. If you're not driving right now, close your eyes. If you are driving, just imagine you're closing your eyes. I just wanna walk through these three questions to close off today. Um, the three questions that Jesus asks Peter, and I'm gonna pause to give you a, a chance to just respond silently on your own. So you're walking on the beach with Jesus. He, you're, you're thrilled that you get to see him again. And then he asks you an upending question you weren't expecting. He asks you, do you, do you, do you really love me? And you answer. And after you answer, Jesus looks at you and says, well, feed my sheep then. And then he asks a second time, but do you really love me? And you answer, And once again, after you've answered, he's, he says, feed my sheep. And then inexplicably and, and hurtfully, he asks the third time. Now, do, really, do you really love me? And this time you answer. And one more time, Jesus says, okay, then feed my sheep. Yeah, what he's saying here is, if that's true, then don't be like the Pharisees. Um, act on it. Do something. Act in the definition of goodness that has been revealed in the kingdom of God. Act on it. Start acting this way. That will, uh, when you start helping others to find sustenance, nutrition, to start to consume and, and eat on the kingdom of God in their life, whether that's challenging them or inviting them, then that's feeding your Jesus' sheep. He wants his sheep fed, and he wants them to consume the kingdom of God. How do we do that? What are our first steps? What will you do today? What's something you can do today that lives out something that Jesus just described in Matthew 5 through 7? as good. Whatever that thing is, you'll be contributing to the advance of the kingdom of God when you do. All right, gang, thanks for listening. Again, this is uh, Paying Ridiculous Attention to Jesus, Season 6, Episode 2. Just go to that uh, Paying Ridiculous Attention to Jesus.com and look for that Season 6, Episode 2 and look for links that, for things we've talked about today. And you can find all that stuff there. And then uh, if you want to make sure you don't miss any of these podcast you can always subscribe to it on google play or itunes or wherever you get your podcasts and of course the name again is paying ridiculous attention to jesus this is a podcast from rick and we'll see you again next week